Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Changes, a podcast by me, Annie McManus. Hello folks, it's so good to have you here. It's so good to be back for a brand new series of the Changes podcast. This is a place where we speak to fascinating people all about change and how it's affected their lives personally and professionally, how they've moved through it, how they've climbed over it and also people who want to affect change, people who want to make the world work in a different way. There's so many brilliant conversations for you to hear with such brilliant characters people who are honest and generous and emotional and will make you cry and laugh and I really hope that you enjoy the conversations as much as we've enjoyed putting them together for you. Thank you for getting in touch, thank you for your feedback about series one. I wanted to highlight just one text, if that's okay, from a girl called Lucy Waite, a junior doctor in Scotland. It really stuck with me this, it made me so happy to read. She said, I just finished a 500 mile walk which involved living in a tent for a month and this podcast got me through some shit days with exactly the right balance of laughing and crying and just all the wisdom and clarity that you and your guests bring to it. It makes you feel like a better person for listening without being in any way superior, moral or arsy. Well Lucy, I am just so delighted that you feel that way and I really sincerely hope that this series, series two of Changes, uh, has the same impact on you. Right. Guest one of series two of Changes is world-renowned and much-loved author Zadie Smith. You may know her novels, White Teeth, On Beauty, NW, Swing Time, to name but a few. Feel Free, an amazing book of essays that I fell in love with. And most recently, a book called Intimations, which is why she's on the podcast. As COVID-19 swept its way across the world, Zadie Smith wrote six personal, powerful and reflective essays exploring ideas and questions around our new reality. The book is out now. All proceeds go to charity. So you are pretty much donating to charity and feeding your soul all in one go when you buy intimations. We spoke on the penultimate day of July on a very warm, balmy evening. We drank wine and we spoke about things like social media, mothering, misogyny, the huge differences Zadie found between living in New York and London and how they dealt with a pandemic, Zadie's attitude to writing and how that changed during the pandemic, how she fought for space and time to work and read. She was predictably brilliant and I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. We do talk about some darker issues with regards to COVID. So if you are sensitive about COVID-19, please check the show notes for the details. But time to begin. Please enter the podcast, Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you're in London? Yeah, I'm in London. How's it all going? It's it's a transition. I've been away for 10 years, so it takes a bit of getting used to. But it's nice. It's back back at home, yeah. Around the corner from my mum, my brother, my other brother. It's fully in the in the local nest. Yeah. Are you happy that you got to spend it in London? Lockdown. Sorry, lockdown. Yeah. No, I mean, I spent it in New York. Um, then I was upstate for a bit. Then I was back in New York. And then I was in London. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's just been weird. I mean, you probably know, like, Brent is the highest level of death in the country, I think, first or second or something. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a melancholy 
return. Have you yeah. been worried for your own health in this? No. Or have you been one of those people that have been worried for your family more than yourself, as in your extended family? Yeah, my extended family are older and black. So, you know, by the figures, I've got, yeah, yeah you've got statistically to be quite mm. seriously worried. But my mum has been careful, very careful. My gran is like 93. She's isolated, but okay. Wow. So in London, it feels different. In, in New York, there was a, such an apocalyptic feeling that I think everybody felt worried about everyone all the time and themselves. And I, I shared mm. in that anxiety mm. when I was there. Well, this podcast is all based on change. And obviously the world has had uh, an overwhelming amount of it in the last four months and you in the middle of it managed to write a book of essays your brain didn't freeze over then like it did you feel uh, a kind of creative block at the start I mean a friend of mine Ayala Waldman is another writer she wrote me this outraged email like how the fuck did you write a book or whatever but I knew that she for example had been <laughs> delivering food to half of South California in a like a spontaneous volunteer spectacular yeah. so what I said to her is like you're thinking about it the wrong way around like it's for me it's just whatever it's like a compulsion it's not it's neither here nor there mm. so I just did some more of it but you had considerably less time I presume like everyone to do your job um because yeah. it, you you weren't an essential worker no um I mean when it, yeah how did you find that aspect of it well when it started we would teach we were still, I was still teaching. So I was teaching on Zoom until early May. But but anything that I wrote was dependent on Nick giving me the hours to write it. So it, all, all the glory should go to him really because it couldn't have done it otherwise. You know, it was a compromise action. And then when I finished, I did more of the work and he had teaching to do. And so it was like that. Our, our lives are always a bit like that, but it was a more extreme version of mm. compromise yeah mm, mm. there's so much about the essays there's so much of that I read and related to and that was one of them was the idea of kind of fighting for your space to work right. and then and then getting into a room to work and feeling quite overwhelmed and a little bit lost right. and just be like what do I do? I've spent yeah. so long focusing on the fight and now I'm here and what's it's, the point of it yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I felt that very strongly and it wasn't mostly what I was doing in that room when I got to it was not writing was reading you know Right. I, it's really what I feel compelled to do is read and the thought of not being able to read was really stressing me out whereas the th thought about not writing it doesn't really bother me but out of the reading came the essays I guess that's what happened mm. but really the all I wanted was some time to to think yeah it's mm. it's quite hard to, to think as you know with small children around it's hard to get a moment to have a thought um, there's another thing you wrote about which was the idea of your daily schedule being exposed and finally people seeing what you do every day um you called yeah. it a sad dry small idea of a life and how exposed it looks now that the people I love are in the same room to witness the way I do time um did that did that change at all over the course of of lockdown that how you felt about what you did and the exposure of it uh not really I mean I think it's true of a lot of writers you spend your time supposedly writing about human relation and empathy and compassion and then you spend your actual life trying to tell all the people in your life to fuck off so you can do some work <laughs> so there's a serious gap between what you claim to believe is important and what you are actually enacting and I think that became seriously evident in in the first few months and also I guess it's what I want to write about like mm. when when it struck 
all around me I saw people who were genuinely heroic, particularly in New York, who just got it together immediately, yeah. organized community services, helped people, just political organization, practical organization. And I was just completely laid out by it. You know, yeah. I was just kind of on my bed in a complete uh, depressive fit. And that, it just interested me. I guess it's what happens in a war, right? You, you find out the qualities of people, the kind of people mm. they are, what they're capable of. And, and for me, the news for me was not very much. <laughs> apart from writing so then I just I decided well I'll do the thing I do and I'll try and make it functional by in this case you know making it a a charitable effort like at least yeah. it'll be something yeah yeah, yeah 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 so all proceeds go to go to charity but you you talked about um not doing much but then you also talk in something to do about the need and the constant kind of the relentless need to do something all the time right that was another thing that i really related to the kind of feeling of always having to be busy and being lost if there isn't some sort of a plan of things to do right. how did you cope with that and did you still relentlessly plan your days within the kind of I, I really tried to yeah. and uh it's it's a flaw in me you know I, I those kind of mothers who I guess I'm one of them is always trying to organize something to do something fun to yeah. do most of the time all your kids want you to do is just to be there sure that's it. That's like that's the end of the story. They don't need to go to the zoo. They're not really into your bike ride up the wherever. They don't care about any of it. Um, and so, with all of that gone, um, that's what I mean about being exposed. I guess it, it, the people who find it hard to to be present <laughs> in the new vocabulary were were really that was really revealed to you very starkly. No? Yeah. How did you find the whole um, wrestle between? homeschooling not homeschooling like trying to educate your children like I don't know how it worked with your your kids in school over in New York but here our school gave us like um it's the the comprehensive down the road and they gave us really cool like guidelines every morning with links and kind of six yeah, or seven things that. it was really good so we had a very kind of clear indication of stuff we could try and do but after right. did you try and I do did. it I did I got at the start I was so keen I was mad for it and then about a month in it just all went to shit and yeah and I kind of there kind was of a realization that no this kitchen is not your classroom I am not your teacher this is this is it, it was really impossible yeah in New York it was very stark because our kids also go to a comprehensive what they call a public school over there and the gap that was so evident immediately between privately educated kids in New York and I'm sure all around the country yeah. who were who had endless Zoom classes and all the rest of it and then the public school kids our kids included had about 10 minutes of Zoom and then the rest of it was <laughs> good luck yeah. to you and of course we're educated people so we could fill in the gaps and but I was constantly thinking my mum was a social worker for years and you just had to extrapolate to imagine what must be going on in households no. throughout the city throughout the country it was so depressing and then when I got back here, I almost was, <laughs> I, I was close to tears. First of all, at the existence of things like Radio 1 Extra, which always makes me, brings me close to tears, sentimental. Yeah. Like, oh, someone's bothered to make a radio station for me, <laughs> for free? Why have they done this? And then I was in the park complaining about homeschooling and mum said, oh, just go on the BBC website. They have like oh, yeah. classes for every day. And it's so long since I've been in England, I, yeah. I almost couldn't get my head around the concept of, Someone is, someone gives a shit about me yeah. for free and is going to provide something that I don't have to pay for. <laughs> so for, for about a few weeks, 
it was just towards the end of school we did the BBC classes every day mm. and it was like a hallelujah yeah well you know when you lose these things you see what they're worth it's really extraordinary what else was um was different about the move between New York to London in a pandemic how, how did you feel there was differences or similarities between the two countries you know it just it just really couldn't be any more different like in New York I know there are more masks now in London but everybody is masked all the time in all situations really babies wow. the homeless everybody running on a bike in all situations always yeah. it's it's a completely different world and people are really traumatized they're really traumatized i think it was 40,000 deaths in the state 20,000 deaths in the city it's it's a it's a different mm. universe mm. i saw the shocking uh, yeah. the, like the shocking news footage of the 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 mass grave um where was it that they put it right n- next to the water somewhere on the edges of new york um yeah, it I was mean, like if i was like 20 fucking... i'd be at a mass grave i can't judge people for no 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 no, no a mass grave <laughs> A mass grave. A mass grave. <laughs> I was like, mass grave? <laughs> both both uh, are weirdly relevant. Yeah, there are, there are mass graves and there was a van of, of bodies. I didn't see it, but some very close to my apartment on 7th Jesus Avenue, Christ. which was overflow from a hospital. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. insane. Yeah. So when we came back to London, everybody was just like sitting slightly distant from each other, having a picnic. Yeah. It, and did that freak you like out? The angel of death. I was totally freaked yeah. out. I couldn't believe it because yeah. it's like watching a slow-moving car crash. Because yeah. you've already you've been in the future. You've already been there, and now you've come to this country that's heading to the same place or seem to be. Yeah. Um, it was similar with Ireland because Ireland took it a lot more seriously than England at the start. And I had all my family over in Dublin being like, "What are you? Why? Why is Cheltenham race? Why? Why, right. why are the races still happening? Why are these massive events?" Yeah, and, I know. Oh. Ireland was sensible. Um, yeah. So, have you learned anything about yourself in this time? Obviously, we've seen some of it in the in the essays, but is there stuff that you'll take away from this whole episode, this whole chaos, and and, and kind of keep with you as a lesson that you have learned about yourself? I think it's something I knew a little bit before, but um, I don't know if it's about myself exactly, but it's about the nature of reality, which yeah. is, I mean, every eighteen-year-old will tell you that that media constructs reality. You say it as a kind of a commonplace when you switch countries like that on the sudden you, you see how true it is it, it's the same disease it's the same problem confronting us but reality is constructed entirely differently in the american television on american radio and so in american life and in britain too like you, your local preoccupations in britain with fining people hmm. that kind of stuff like it, the virus takes on a local color everywhere it goes hmm. it became very british here it was obviously very american in america and uh, I I just realised how, how much of what I thought I felt or what was germane particularly to me is constantly a construction of what I see, watch and take in. And so I, I guess when I got back here, I was I just felt even more determined with whatever life we have rest in front of us, our 20 or 30 years, that I'm going to try and uh, not let my reality be mediated so much. You know, it sounds so cheesy, but I want to live, mm. and I don't. I don't want to uh, waste any time living in in these constructions, particularly, I guess, the online ones. I just, I just don't want it at all. I mean, you already don't have a smartphone deliberately to not be sucked into the world of social media and stuff, right? It wasn't. It wasn't particularly deliberate. I just right. 
you know, I didn't get one and then it was too late. And then, and I, I think about it more like knowing that you're an addictive person, knowing me, right. that looked like a bad idea. <laughs> that's the best way I can put it. It's the same way I feel about heroin. I'm like, yes, yeah, just about to say, it's like, well, I like, try I like yeah. all of, I like drugs, but when I was young, I thought that one, I'll give it a miss. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel about the phones. I'll just yeah. give it a myth. Yeah. And also you've probably had enough time watching the world adapt to social media to know that you don't want to get into it as well. Like you're you're outside of it. You have a and a perspective of it that other people don't have. Unless they stay off their phones for more than a month, which is rare. Yeah. Um, I mean it is it is funny when you're not in it because what's becomes more and more obvious, I know it's such a dull thing to say, is that it is a behaviour modification experiment. Mm. And and people have been modified mm. really severely. People I've known all my life are not the same. They don't talk the same way. They don't think the same way. It's weird when people don't notice they're doing it, but in, in normal human conversation, they speak a bit like the algorithm. You know, they dunk on people. They speak in these little pithy sentences. And when you're not in it, it's like talking to an alien. Yeah. It can be really, uh, it's like <laughs> the body snatchers or something. Yeah. But of course, because everybody's in it, you're the freak, really. I'm the freak, I guess, in this context. But but it is, I, I like remembering what the world was before 2008. I think somebody should remember, mm. just to have some consistency. Because uh, any technology that pretends to be um, natural, permanent, inevitable, unavoidable, is, is disguising an ideological uh, argument. Mm. There's nothing natural or inevitable about this about this particular form of the technology. The technology itself is great. It's great that we're talking to each other. It's great that I can, you know, see a cousin in Ghana or, you know, these things are great. But the particular forms, these monopolies, there is a better internet to come, I believe. And I'll I'll be excited to join it when it arrives. Tell me about um, your thoughts about your chosen places to live. Um, I, I think a lot of people in lockdown, one of the things that seemed to come out of this whole thing was making people be forced to kind of confront the essence of their desires and their needs and their wants in their lives. And, and, and ultimately, there's big changes off the back of that, you know, moving house or getting divorced or whatever. Right. H- have you thought about where where you live? Has, that, has it yeah. changed the way you want to, you know, you're talking about wanting to just live has it made you think more about the London and New York in that way? It made me want to be home, for sure. Home being London. Yeah, home being London, yeah. around my family, around my friends. Yeah. Um, and and within a construction that, even if I don't always agree with it, is familiar to me, rather than the kind of funhouse reality that has taken over uh, stateside. But I don't know, it's quite like, I guess the the line between me and my husband, he's from the country, I'm from the city. And the city means a lot to me. I love cities. I never thought, I don't I don't want to live anywhere else. But his love of nature, mm. that started to make a tiny bit of sense to me. <laughs> but I mean, still, the nature in London is more than enough nature for me. But but I, I understood what he meant about um, being close to that kind of time, not the time of computers not the time of work or the time of culture but the time of trees for example Mm. all of that I found 
maybe it's just a primal thing. I think a lot of people felt that way. The rate that people are running off to live in Oxfordshire, it seems to seems There's to There's a lot of houses for sale in Queen's Park, that's for sure. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> but for, for me, a chestnut tree on Salisbury Road is just fine. I, can stare, but I find myself <laughs> staring at them longer. Yeah. I'm more involved with them. There's such a lovely kind of... Um, assortment of local people that we meet throughout your essays um in new york ben the masseuse myron barbara who i loved how did it feel um how did it feel leaving leaving those people it feels to me like those people are the kind of they are the fabric of your existence in new york new york is about the people right it is that's why you're, you're there right how did it feel kind of moving away for this it's it's a little traumatizing i really love new york i really love the people but not for the the kind of people I'm writing about who are embedded New Yorkers, but for me, floating above New York, working at a university, I just became more and more aware that whatever illusion Mm. that people like me had in New York, that somehow this presidency was going to be a containable disaster, was uh, revealed as a delusion, you know, and a self-serving delusion. I wanted to believe that. All the things New Yorkers tell each other, we're we're not America, we're a separate entity, we're an island. We're, you know, it's all bullshit. <laughs> it's not true. It's one country and sure. when a person like that becomes president, mm. it, it's a disaster without end. And not just him, but the fact that he was able to become president was the disaster. He's, he, you know, he's just a kind of empty bag of hot air. But the, the feelings that put him there are, are America, you know, they're there. And just because we're running around New York with our hmm. lefty friends having a good time, it had nothing to do with what was really going on. Um, did it feel like a relief coming back to the state of Britain right now? I mean, that's saying a lot about America. It is. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the things, it's not that I know, I'm not sentimental about England, but the structures that we built post-war are still though they're very frayed at the edges, they still exist. And coming from the land of the free, you can't believe how extraordinary they look from BBC Bite Size Lessons mm. <laughs> to the telly and radio to the state schools. <laughs> it, it all looks like a miracle yeah. to me. I mean, I always appreciated when I grew up in it, but right now it looks like a miracle. And that part I'm just incredibly grateful for. The thought of like September comes and my kids going to the local school at Salisbury, you know that school, yeah, and, do, yeah. and being in classes in which children are, you know, mixed with everybody. It doesn't exist in New York City. It doesn't, but not even in a, not even a comprehensive school. How is that so? No, because the neighbourhoods are segregated. Right. Parents work very hard to make those barriers as narrow as possible around their schools. Yeah. So you can go to schools that are entirely white, entirely Chinese, entirely black. It, it, the schools in New York are segregated as they were in the 50s. Mm. It's a disgrace, you know. Yeah. Um, so that really makes me happy. Mm. You know, some things still exist here, structures which make life, um, you know, tolerable for me. To find a similar school in New York is it's like a, a performance that without end and here mm. it's just at the end mm. of the road and at the end of many roads throughout yeah. the city um where did you write the essays i wrote them well one of them i wrote on a plane <laughs> flying back 
Wow. Just like Which after one? Uh, the essay about George Floyd, I wrote on a plane. Um, wow. I wrote them. We have friends who live about two and a half hours out of New York. And we live on the 11th floor. And we were like, let's we get out of here. We'll go to London. We couldn't get a flight. Our friends invited us to go and stay. We went up there. And then all the flights were grounded. So we waited and waited. And I wrote them there in about a month and a half. And then we went back to New York. And then we got a flight back to here. So it was it was mostly up there. And, you know, I'd never really been anywhere like that for any length of time. Just complete quiet countryside everywhere. Uh, I was unnerved by it for the first week. It was like it was like being dead to me. Of course, my husband was in... Um, you know, he was so delighted. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, and yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't excellent at dealing with it. That's absolutely true. I was not excellent at dealing with it. And perhaps reading and writing was a way of uh, pretending it was business as normal. You know, uh, but but it was a beautiful place, and I really, you know, it was such a, a a privilege to be there. I felt so guilty to be there, of course. And so writing is also a kind of penance, I suppose. A penance. <laughs> yeah. You got to do something. You've got to do something, um, and yeah, it's what I could do. Again, this this, this feeling of kind of um, arguing with yourself in in one of the essays about the kind of the practicality of writing. Like, what's the use? What's the use of yeah. art anyway? I had a similar experience, very vaguely, in that we were called key workers at the BBC, and I was like, that's not possible because I just play pop music. I'm sorry, I'm not a key worker. That's ridiculous. Um, and then there was a weird thing over the course of the months where I realized that people were opening up and we've never done that on our show before. We, you know, we right. always do shout outs and it's like, you know, so-and-so's eating their dinner, so-and-so's on a journey. And then people started talking about their feelings and it was right. like, oh, pause. You know, I've had a really subpar day. And, you know, to be able to read that out kind of felt weirdly useful to be able yeah. to kind of reflect someone's opinion about that. That's it. Was there a point with you where you felt like, okay, this mightn't seem practical in the same way that a nurse is practical right now, but there is something useful about what I'm doing. Well, I guess I had that very directly. My mum is a key worker and uh, she was working in a hospital with women with mental health issues. And, you know, when we were talking to each other, the gap between what she was having to do and deal with and my right. own, you know, just shock and depression at the situation was wide. Um, I, I don't know if I ever... Uh, make peace with the idea of writing as useful or practical it's it's partly i know it's because of partly because my parents if you come from working people there's always this suspicion of like is it a proper job yeah. is it a proper job and my father certainly i know felt that way it wasn't really a proper job as far as he was concerned so what do you call it a use a useless playpen yeah was that is that <laughs> yeah but when i on the when i'm on the other end of art when i'm a reader or a, particularly when i'm a listener yeah then I, I feel it to be life-saving. You know, mm. as a reader, I feel that often. And, and the books I was reading when I was out there were so useful to me. So I, I do have that hope, but, but I think with writing, you just can't ever know what use you're being. It's a kind of intimate thing between a reader and a writer. And it seems very different to me from music or you, you you know from the crowd, the noise. It's a much more communal and active thing. Writing is very quiet. And and the more public part of it, like reviews, and yeah. that's all an industry, but that has really nothing to do with mm. 
the reader sitting in their room. I'm kind of interested in that moment and that's the bit I never get to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was listening back to some podcasts that you've done in the past as research for this and I came across this old Radio 4 kind of book review program. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It was basically a, like a very typical BBC Radio 4 thing where there was a crowd and you were being interviewed by someone it was about white teeth. Oh, it was James McNochty? Naughty? But it was, it was relentless. There was all these people telling you how disappointed they were with certain scenarios in the book yeah, and why yeah, that was character funny. wasn't right. And you were so good-tempered about it and kind of agreeable. And I just thought, this is not fun. Like, obviously... No, that, wasn't, that definitely wasn't fun. You know, it's weird. Now I'm older and, and you can look back and see, uh, you know, the, the obvious misogyny. I see it now when men talk to very young female writers even the fact that I was always called Zadie in those contexts as if I didn't have a last name like yeah, I don't remember right. ever, anyone calling young Ian McEwan Ian oh here comes Ian yeah. Um, yeah. but there was a there was a lot of that and people wanting to you know explain to you how to do your work or explaining to you how you'd, you'd ever manage to get into this position and uh, the various unfair advantages like youth and and your exotic story. <laughs> there was a lot of that in <laughs> oh Britain. And, and looking back... When in I, Britain as yeah, well. It's so embarrassing. When I look back on it, it, it um, you know, they call them microaggressions now. I, didn't, I wouldn't have thought of it. But, yeah. but I don't know. I, I, in, in the end, it's evidence of a certain amount of passion about a book, the, the arguing, the disappointment. I always say to my students, if someone is disappointed by a, plot line or a character in your book that means that they they took they believed in that character sufficiently to have that feeling mm. really bad writing you can't you don't feel anything yeah you're neither angry or happy you're just bored out of your mind yeah yeah well you just don't you just don't carry on reading yeah there's no I reaction just stop a book yeah. halfway through so you don't so, even know about the character to, right to have an opinion yeah <laughs> Um, how are you finding teaching at the moment? Have you found the adaptation to teaching through a screen? I finished in late May, but I have to say my final class I found really moving. We we were all um, quite. It's hard to remember now, right? We've got we've assimilated so much to situation, but we were really quite frightened. Everyone was really quite frightened, mm. and there were also mm. comic aspects. Like I remember in my class. You know, particularly in American class, there's a lot of, you know, they're young and they have, there's sometimes a lot of rhetorical posturing and, uh, you know, they they urgently want their fellow students and I suppose me to think of them in various ways. So, but then when everybody was suddenly out of the classroom and in their private spaces that you don't normally see, you would find that the radical Marxist feminist was actually the daughter of a Russian oligarch because she seems to be living in a hotel in St. Lucia. So that's weird. Or, or the, you know, so it, it was really funny. And I mean, I'm sure they didn't find it funny. They all, but to me, it was kind of comic and moving that the way people present yeah. themselves in those situations turns out often, of course, to be quite distant from the practical realities of their lives. And uh, I don't know, I found it touching. I, the first few weeks, everyone was a bit sheepish as you know, the truth was revealed about their money or their lack of money mm. or whatever it was. Um, but in, towards the end, the books we were reading, because it's a literature class, we read books, it just all seemed very personal and important. Like, I, I've never really read books in that way mm. where it, it really felt like a little community. And I, I, I look forward to going down it, 
put my headphones on and seeing them all. I hope they felt the same way. It, it was a good time. Mm. It is hard to teach on Zoom. The, the lack of intimacy of, of being able to see someone's how they're reacting, how they're feeling, um, I find quite hard. I can imagine as well the lack of the lack of kind of communal noise, like a kind of a kind of circle of laughter, kind of rippling around, you know, reaction stuff. It's really hard. And also a lot of these people were really alone. Like they had the option to go back to their parents in the Midwest or wherever they're from. Often they didn't want to do that because they feared for their parents. Or So there were quite a few students who were completely isolated, you know, in small student rooms in New York. Yeah, watching their whole future, everything they'd hoped for, just crumble. It that it was, I don't know. You th- you think about the years we were graduating. It's like a different. Yeah, you feel you feel so terrible for them. Mm. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. One of the things you said in the book was that COVID tested your physical and moral cowardice. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean, I guess I know I don't have any physical bravery. <laughs> that's, that's not a big <laughs> surprise to me. Um, You're not a black belt in karate no. then. Okay. Um, you know, it was interesting because part, first of all, you had to work out what was brave. Was it brave to stay? In in my case, in a building of like 2,000 people, many of them old, what's best? Like, you could see everybody telling themselves, myself included, the story they wanted to tell themselves, right? So if you were leaving, you were telling yourself, sure, it's best. I'll be more isolated where I'm going, and it's best for these people. And I want to be in the place where it's happening, which seemed like a weird metaphor, because then you're also touching the lift buttons with it. Every, every normal... <laughs> moral line was kind of confused um but I guess for me I was aware of telling the story I needed to tell myself and also particularly what what being in a family does it creates so many different kinds of Mm. political and personal compromise and that interested me like how, how do you continue to be a part of a broader struggle and believe in a broader struggle when you have this immediate in front of you these children whose first demand is that you Mm. help them and keep them alive and all the rest of it I don't I don't have an answer it but I was just aware of of that conflict in a lot of people and that larger versions of that conflict you know from everything from school choice to healthcare and on and on in every part of society basically is the enemy of the revolution (laughs) this constant thought that yes yes but what about my clan? So it just it made me think, how can we create a politics which allows people to do this instinctive thing, protect supposedly their family, their clan, and not do damage? Because in the American system, at least, 
there there it's only it creates only damage you know that obsessive individualism you really mm. felt it in new york that whatever kind of communal space that was meant to happen in an emergency was just not there there was nothing to support it people created it like really amazing people created volunteer groups and but they did it all themselves the people there was no there was no sense of a wider support you talk about the in the american exception essay about clement attlee um who who i did not know yeah. about um so i learned that um about him being the leader of the opposition against winston churchill right. um remind me what he said again i don't i can't remember what he said about people basically people winning the war it was people that won the war yeah right because there were two different arguments going on when churchill won there was a kind of tory home counties um upper class idea of kind of heroism like leave it leave it in our hands we've won this thing let us continue <laughs> and I, I notice in England that that narrative has a, you know, a lot of space is still given to it, even though that's not actually what happened. The country itself revolted against this patrician attitude en masse and created a series of extraordinarily large institutions, not least of which the National Health Service, um, which transformed England. I mean, they, it transformed Britain. And uh, I'm really interested in that period, not because it was a perfect world but because it was such a messy grimy mix of activism the vote political will public consciousness like to me that's how change happens it's it doesn't you can't put it in 140 characters and it might sound dull or like liberalism <laughs> or whatever the kids think it is but but if you were subject to that change if you were no longer like say my father was in 1928 you know two years old with no outhouse with no hope of a secondary education, with no hope of healthcare, it made a big fucking difference. These lives were transformed. And to me, that model of social justice, though it will need a lot of, you know, tinkering and transformation, is an example of the best we've ever managed. Mm. (laughs) Even if it wasn't much, it's better than everything else. It totally is. And it's interesting seeing that because you see that from obviously the perspective of living outside of it as well. Right. I need to find the quote. I can't remember. But he kind of he talks about this utopian situation that if people realise that it's not about private interests, it's about the people that, you know, we could have a society that was, you know, efficient and worked. Right. Do you think that's possible to achieve? I don't know, man. I'm just a novelist. (laughs) But I know... I know it did happen, and it involved serious coalition politics. Yeah. Involved the white working classes and what are now called BAME people, our (laughs) 500th name in this country, uh, uh, in coalition with each other. Working class women and middle class women in coalition with each other. It, It takes a broad church to make something like that happen. So... There has to be a will, for sure. Where were you? Um, were you in New York or were you in London when George Floyd was killed? I was in New York and we drove to the airport. We drove through what must have been the first protest. Mm. The first one I'd heard of anyway in New York. I didn't even know what it was. It was so early. And then by the time I was on the plane, because they have Wi-Fi on the goddamn plane now, uh, I could also see the news and you know I saw that our neighbourhood, like down below Grange Village into Soho, you know, was on fire. The shops were being looted. So that, yeah, it was like that. And I 
I wrote the piece then. And then by the time we were in London, uh, it was in full flow. We went to a protest in Kilburn. Oh, so yeah. did we. Yeah, we the one the family, family and kids won. Yeah, we yeah. went to that too. Yeah, that was good. That was really nice. There was something very, very, um, very lovely about the yeah. whole thing. It was yeah, great. Small, but lovely. Okay, so Zadie, you have said that uh, perfect novels are rarer than rubies. Can you recommend us a novel that you hold up as perfect? Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, boy. I'm sorry. Maybe just the latest one you read that you liked. I read, I really had fun with this novel, Exciting Times. Okay. An Irish woman called Dolan is her last name. It's very funny. It's like a kind of spiky Marxist feminist comedy. And uh, it's really kind of mean. <laughs> but, okay. but it was fun. I, I like. I really like reading first novels. I'm always interested in what's So that's her debut on. novel? It's her debut novel. And I, there's something thrilling about debut novels to me. Like just seeing oh something my God. new. I've just finished my scene. debut novel. Oh, have you? Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, you know, I, send it along. I, I love I, to hear no, it, read a first. Don't do that. <laughs> I am um, no, but I, I was when I was listening to your book thing on Radio Four. I was like, "Fucking hell!" I, I don't know how you did that because you just, it, it just the, the idea of putting something out that's so intimate, even though it's nothing about you. It just feels so intimate uh, 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 because it's, it's you've created something from nothing. It just scares the bejesus out of me. Basically, I'm absolutely terrified about it. I think that's the part I don't like. I write them with feeling and personally but once they're published I, I do feel a kind of distance from them I think it's something to do with the way I was trained like I was trained as a as a critic really you know as a an English student so once the book's written I know it's by me but but I, <laughs> I just don't I don't feel that way are you it. your yeah. own are you a critic of your own work I mean yeah for sure yeah I can imagine so you're your own biggest critic so is it kind of a situation where other people can't critique it uh, in yeah a way? I don't think it I, I don't think it hurts me in the same way but I, I, it's not. I'm not attached to them in that way. That's the best way I can put it. Or at least yeah. I can see their flaws quite clearly. So, yeah. I mean, that was interesting about that sh- program yeah. is that you were able to agree with the people and be like, yeah, I know. Yeah, that. I mean, you were, you were kind of allying with their opinions in a way, um, and not defensive at yeah. all about it, which I can imagine a lot of people would have been, whether they liked it or not. I don't think there's any point. Like sometimes I have it with my students. I'm marking something of theirs, and they'll start arguing with me about. Oh, I meant this, and oh, I meant that, and as if it's possible to walk into the reader's living room and say, <laughs> "No, no, no, you you don't understand." Yeah. What I what I meant was, you've misunderstood. Once the text is text, you it it's gone. It's nothing to do with you anymore. Wow. The reader has all rights, all control, and um, it seems to me foolish to to cling on mm. to it like it's something of yours. It's gone by okay. then. That's good advice. Um, what are you working on next? Oh, no, nothing. I mean, nothing. I I don't. Really? But you have no, to write. I don't, in the summers, I don't write anything. I don't think I've written anything in the summer mm. since I had children, and I don't imagine that will change. I'm very... No, I don't do anything. In September, maybe. I, I wrote something before yeah. this, which is a, a kind of play that was meant to go on, I guess, now-ish, but that was all cancelled. So maybe that will happen, if right. plays ever happen again. Is there anything about about your life right now as it stands that you would like to change? I would just like to be able to sit in silence and just relax. That's what I would like to do. I'd like to know how to meditate or do any of those things that people do that involve not thinking. I would like to do that, but it's it's just against my nature or something. Have you ever done yoga? 
I've never fucking done yoga and I never will do yoga. No, listen, that's what I said. And I've taken it up two weeks ago and I'm sold. I'll send you a link. Oh, God. It's only 20 minutes a day. I mean, you run, you run. Surely that's, yeah, surely that's a meditation, like that. no? No, yeah, but it's those running, swimming. I like to hard things I can... Sweat. Hurt that I can yeah. do, yeah. That's exactly but the same as Yoga me. is is a much more frightening proposition. <laughs> it's about centering yourself and lots of things that I am not <laughs> I am not good at. Yeah. But maybe now's the time. I thought I thought I was the same and I've always I was like, it's ridiculous, you don't sweat, so I don't do it. But I do actually sweat. So I was surprised. Alright. Zadie, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was really lovely to talk to you. And yeah, and you. Long time fan, first time, whatever they say. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know if Sadie Smith's ever going to take up yoga, but I did try my best. When did I ever become a person that tried to get other people to do yoga? I think the rosé had kicked in at that point. It was very late in the evening. Uh, Thank you to Sadie Smith for her generosity and her honesty uh, and just her wisdom about all things COVID-19. It was so great to chat to her and please do go get your hands on that book. It is so exquisitely written and as I said all proceeds go to charity. Intimations by Zadie Smith. Go get that now. All right, next week on the podcast, Ramesh Ranganathan, huge comedian. He's all over your telly and significantly for this podcast has experienced massive changes, very personal changes that affected him in his early teens specifically. And he talks about them so candidly. He really opens up on next week's episode. You're really going to want to hear this. So Ramesh Ranganathan on episode two of Changes next week. Oh, you may have noticed that I called myself by my full name at the top of the show, Annie McManus. That's because that is the full name. You may know me as Annie Mac, but here and there, sometimes I'm going to be coming up as Annie McManus and this podcast is one of those places. So if that's all right with you, don't be confused. Same person, same hair, same voice, same everything, just a bit of the longer name, less abbreviated, Annie McManus. Okay, this podcast was brought to you by Louise Mason with help from Abby Hollick at We Think Audio and I will be back next week. Can't wait. See you then. <laughs>